0: Come, follow me, the Savior said. Then let us in, his footsteps tread. For thus alone can we This is Lexi Austin, and you are listening to The Savior Said, Season 2. This is a weekly podcast that follows my study of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Each week, I will be using the Come, Follow Me curriculum of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This curriculum can be found online at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For more fun, follow me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Said. Please note, episodes of The Savior Said are not meant to replace your Come Follow Me experience, but to supplement your own personal study of the scriptures. Hey guys, welcome back to The Savior Said. This is the episode for July 6th through 12th, Alma 30 and 31, The Virtue of the Word of God. And to be perfectly honest with you, I did not want to do this episode. Like, it started out after I had just done my quick run-through of 30 and 31 and to read through on the Come Follow Me lesson, and I just was not excited. Like, I went through and I was like, well... You know, is there a lot I can really dive in here with? Or, I mean, I'm like, can we just agree that Antichrist is bad? And <laughs> we want to be for Christ and we want to be for the gospel. And can we just agree with that and like call that an episode and just go on? Like even to the point I texted one of my friends, Kansas, if you listened to last season, last year's Come Follow Me. Um, she was on the podcast, I think twice um, she was on the podcast. And I texted her and was like, hey, do you want to do this upcoming episode? Because here's this assignment. And she looked at it, and she was like, whoa, no. <laughs> um, it's, because it's loaded. Um, if we were to do it at a very surface level, it is very surface level. Like, Antichrist is bad, and we want to love Christ, and we want to just move on from there, right? But if you go in and you start picking apart this lesson and picking apart the different things that we can learn from Corahor and Alma and their interaction with each other, um, it becomes very timely. And that was another reason that I didn't even want to attack the subject because I feel like right now we are like stuck in the middle of a societal kind of war almost where people are attacking each other and there's truth but whose truth is the right truth and they're yelling at each other and like there's just so much tumult like socially and culturally, I feel, um, that I didn't want to step my foot in the middle of that. So that was another concern. And so I'm going to try really hard to do this episode in a way that no one gets angry. <laughs> Please don't be angry at me. Please don't be mad, y'all. Don't send me mad letters because um, I'm just going to try and do my very best to stay neutral in all of this, okay? Um, but, oh, we're going to jump right in to come follow me and, and you'll see probably what I'm talking about as we move along, Okay. Alma 30.31, The Virtue of the Word of God. It starts out by saying, The accounts in Alma 30.31 clearly demonstrate the power of words, for evil and for good. The flattering and great, great swelling words of a false teacher named Korahor threatened to bring many souls down to destruction. Similarly, the teachings of a Nephite dissenter named Zoram led a whole group of people to fall into great errors and pervert the ways of The Lord. In contrast, Alma had unwavering faith that the word of God would have a more powerful effect upon the minds of the people than the sword or anything else, including the words of Korihor and Zoram. Alma's words expressed eternal truth and drew upon the powers of heaven to silence Korihor, and they invited heaven's blessing on those who went with him to bring the Zoramites back to the truth. These are valuable examples for followers of Christ today. When great swelling words and great errors again have a powerful effect on the minds of the people, but we can find truth in trusting, like Alma did, in the virtue of the Word of God. Okay, it's true. I feel like there are a lot of great swelling words and great errors in our society, but the thing that I think is different from when Alma and Korohor were talking to like today is Alma and Korohor. Like, there was, it was very almost black and white. Like, you could definitely see, like, who was in the right and who was in the wrong. And I think in some cases today, you can see that in some arguments and some different schools of thought. But I think that there's more and more gray um, between the, that black and white kind of scenario. And it's harder and harder to make out what's truth in the middle of all this gray matter that I think we're constantly surrounded in. And, you know, what's the best in the middle of all the good? Um, I don't know. That's just something I've been thinking a lot about. But let's start out with the first section and Come Follow Me. It's called, What is an Antichrist? And I actually wanted to read the verse where this comes from. It's Alma 30, verse 6. And it says, But it came to pass in the latter end of the 17th year, there came a man into the land of Zarahemla, and he was Antichrist. Okay, pause there. So it's interesting to me that when we first meet Korihor, he's not called an Antichrist. It says that he was just Antichrist. Um, so interesting to me. I, and I, I'm trying to think in my brain, like, why would that make such a distinction for me? And I think because it means like his whole philosophy was antichrist. So I don't know. It just was interesting to me the way that that was phrased. Continuing, for he began to preach unto the people against the prophecies, which had been spoken by the prophets concerning the coming of Christ. And that's why he was antichrist. Christ. Okay. Now, if we read in the Bible dictionary, it says an antichrist is one who would assume the guise of Christ, but in reality would be opposed to Christ. That's the definition from John. Or, in a broader sense, such as Core Horse case, it is anyone or anything that counterfeits the true gospel or plan of salvation, and that openly or secretly is set up in opposition to Christ. Um, sometimes I think some of the philosophies of the world that we counter that are antichrist that are set up in opposition to Christ and Christ's gospels I don't think that they even openly know that they're antichrist or openly think huh, I'm gonna get those Christians like I don't think that that's what they're thinking I think they're honestly thinking that they're striving for the truth but it's not correct you know so I don't think that necessarily is And it counterfeits it openly. I think the secretly part is sometimes even it's mistakenly secret, if that makes sense. Okay, so Come Follow Me says, what counterfeits of the true gospel do you notice in today's world? For example, Sister Julie B. Beck, former Relief Society General President, taught, any doctrine or principle we hear from the world that is anti-family is also anti-Christ. And that comes from her talk, Teaching the Doctrine of the Family, and it's in the Ensign March 2011 and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. but as I was thinking about antichrists in the world and the Antichrist philosophies of the world, um, I th- thought over and over again this week as I was reading again Alma and Korahor going at it back and forth between each other um, the armor of God from Ephesians is really what I started thinking about and Ephesians 6:12 was the verse that came to my mind more often than not and it says, "For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, and against spiritual wickedness in high places. And that's really what we're wrestling with here in this world is not necessarily like one bad dude, but the one bad dude and his whole philosophy that he's bringing with him on social media, or, you know, on CNN, or whatever it is that they're on. And it could be a bad dudette. I'm not saying it's just men, like there's bad women out there too. And Sometimes I think it could be a good man or a good woman that is just subscribed to the wrong notion. I don't know. So that was something I was thinking about. Okay, I want to go into something Julie B. Beck says because I do want to talk about um, how some of the anti-family sentiments of the world kind of, I guess, are anti-Christ. She says in her particular talk, Teaching the Doctrine of the Family, she says, We all need to understand the threats to the family. If we don't, we can't prepare for battle. Now, remember from Ephesians 6.12, we know we are battling not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness. Okay, that's scary, right? Evidence is all around us that the family is becoming less important. Marriage rates are declining. The age of marriage is rising. Divorce rates are rising. Out-of-wedlock births are growing. Abortion is rising and becoming increasingly legal. We see lower birth rates. Okay, pause. One of the things I think is so interesting is, you know, we talk about lower birth rates and we want to not have those lower birth rates. But I know so many people, so many of my friends that have issues with infertility. And so to me, that's almost like a quandary there where I'm like, Heavenly Father, you want us to have children. But I know so many people who struggle with that. Like, that is not something that's so easy. Maybe it's because we are all getting older and we're waiting like a little bit longer to start having kids. I don't know. But that's something that is very, very common amongst me and my friends, I guess, that we're all struggling with that birth rate thing. We want to increase the birth rate, but it's hard to do, like especially when you're infertile, right? Okay, continuing on. We see unequal relationships between men and women, and we see cultures that still practice abuse within family relationships. Many times a career gains importance over the family. Many of our youth are losing confidence in the institution of families. They're placing more and more value on education and less and less importance on forming an eternal family. Many don't see forming families as faith-based work. For them, it's a selection process, much like shopping. Many also distrust their own moral strength and the moral strength of their peers. Because temptations are so fierce, many are not sure they can be successful in keeping covenants. Many youth also have insufficient and underdeveloped social skills which are an impediment to forming eternal families. I think that's so true especially today where our whole worlds are online. I don't think it's just youth either. Our whole worlds because of the COVID crisis and because of the technology that's developed from there, so many of us are working from home, so many of us are quarantining at home, our whole world is online. And I think when we do finally like go back to normal and I'm saying that with like air quotes, when we go back to normal, Our social interactions are going to be completely different. I think we as a culture are going to be socially different. I think that there's going to be some kind of mutation, I guess you could say, in the way that we interact with each other because we are so used to doing it virtually and being apart while we're interacting versus doing it face-to-face. I think we're going to lose something. And I think she's talking even in 2011 that there was already things that we were starting to lose. And I think we've lost a whole lot more within the last six months than we realize She says they are increasingly adept at talking to someone 50 miles away and less able to carry on conversations with people in the same room. This makes it difficult for them to socialize with each other. All right. So when we're talking about counterfeits, Satan's counterfeits in the world, this was one of the ones that I started thinking about, Um, you know, by necessity, we are doing the virtual school thing. We're doing the virtual work thing. Like that's just a necessity right now. But I think a lot of times we have these online lives and we have these online presences and we even call it a digital footprint when we're teaching digital citizenship to the kids at school. It's your digital footprint, what you're leaving online, that's that's you, that's online. And that's a counterfeit of what our Heavenly Father wants for us. We came to earth to get a body. Because we want to have this mortal experience in our body, and we want to be able to make choices in our body. And we sit down in front of computers where a body really isn't necessary. All that's necessary is your typing fingers and the thoughts that you're putting into those typing fingers. And we're kind of, I guess, taking away the importance of that body. So to me, that was instructive that, you know, and I'm not saying that the internet's bad, that virtual stuff is bad. Please don't take it that way. That's not how this is intended at all. To me, that was like, I need to make a better balance in my life of virtual versus non-virtual time. Um, Another counterfeit I see that's kind of in the same vein is watching movies or Netflix binges like on end. Um, And I think sometimes we need it. I think sometimes we need a mental break, but I can sit there and I can live life through the characters that I'm seeing on TV for hours at a time, or. I can live my actual life with my actual family and we can do stuff together. Like, do you see how that's a counterfeit of what Christ wants? Christ wants me to spend time with my family and grow bonds with my family, not sit there and binge watch whatever TV show I'm watching at the time. You know, so, but again, I think that there's a time and place for everything. I think there's a time and place for Netflix binges. I think that there is. You know, I just, again, this is me checking myself. Like, Lexi, did you really need to watch all those shows? Or did you need to spend time with your kid? Like, you know, did you really need to be doing all this? Or is there something that you can be better using your time for? Like, is this the counterfeit? Uh, that Satan has in your life that you need to better be better spending on something that Christ has for you like that's those are the questions that I was thinking about this week and Julie Beck's comments specifically about that you know the kids being more adept at conversing with someone who's a million miles away versus someone in the same room just open that whole world of what's counterfeit and what's real and what's antichrist and what's Christ's gospel message, you know? So that's something I was thinking of. And to go along with the whole virtual online kind of counterfeit type stuff, she talks about the ways that our media consumption is influencing our, you know, I guess consumption of the gospel or the consumption of um, having the Holy Ghost in our lives, I guess. She says, public policies are being made every day that are anti-family. And the definition of family is changing legally around the world. Pornography is rampant. For those who create pornography, their new target audience is young women. Parents are being portrayed as inept and out of touch in TV shows. Anti-family media messages are everywhere. Youth are being desensitized about the need to form eternal families. I've noticed that too on TV shows. The parent and child relationships, you know, you've got so much backtalking and just rudeness. And if you watch for those laugh tracks... We you know, where, like, the canned laughter comes in. It's usually a character making, like, a sarcastic remark about another character, cutting them down. Like, and we're being trained to think that that's funny. You know, it's scary to see, like, the, the kind of family relationships that are being, like, idolized almost on these TV shows. Um, it's really scary. And she says, We see how this can happen when we read the words of Korihor and Antichrist. Thus he did preach unto them, leading away the hearts of many, causing them to lift up their heads in wickedness, yea, leading away many women and also men to commit whoredoms. Satan knows that he will never have a body; he will never have a family, so he targets young women, and I say he also targets young men who will create the bodies for the future generations. Corahor was an antichrist antichrist is anti family any doctrine or principle our youth hear from the world that is anti-family is also anti-Christ. It's that clear. If our youth cease to believe in the righteous traditions of their fathers, as did the people as described in Mosiah 26, if our youth don't understand their part in the plan, they could be led away. And that's just heartbreaking to me. Um, thinking about what our youth are being taught? You know, my son and I have had lots of conversations. <laughs> that's, that's one of the things I say that this has actually been good about is um, my kid and I have had lots of lots of time to talk. Uh, my husband is going to work. He's considered essential in his job for the government. And so he's been going to work every single day. He has not even missed a day of work throughout this entire quarantine. So life for him has been normal. But with both my son and I, You know, we've been out of school, and now we're on summer break, so we've had, like, a super long extended summer break. And so we've had a lot of time together. And during that time, you know, we've had lots of different conversations. And he's 14. Obviously, he's growing into teenagerhood. And he has lots of questions about, like, well, my friend said this about, you know, sex. And my friend said that this about this. And so lots and lots of discussion, sometimes uncomfortable discussion. But it's interesting when I talk to him to see his take on things like premarital sex and things like that, that I can see the values that we're instilling in him, the way he treats women and the way that he will interact with them when he goes on dates and, you know, just his expectations for dating and things like that. I can see that it's starting to take. And to me, that is such a blessing to have this time with him, to influence that, to build these foundations so that when he is in these relationships with women, he knows how to treat them respectfully. He understands the importance of being respectful in a relationship. and He knows the importance of physical intimacy Um, and just building that foundation by talking about all this with him and being very open and honest and, you know, uncomfortable as the discussion may be. I feel like that helps fight against the counterfeits, the antichrist counterfeits of what a family needs to be that he's going to see in the upcoming years. I'm hoping that those foundations will help fight against that. I'm praying that they will. And so that's why I feel like it's really important to have those conversations with him, even when it's so uncomfortable. So that was another part of the whole antichrist, christ anti-family kind of thing, thing that I saw. Another thing I thought about was you know, our need to feel perfect, our need to be perfect. All the ads out there that, hey, you don't look this way. Why don't you try this product that will make you feel this way? Oh, you don't look this way. Why don't you try this product that will make your hair this way? Oh, you don't feel good enough. Why don't you try this product that will make you feel good enough? And all the anti-aging stuff, all the like cosmetic stuff. And again, I'm not anti-cosmetic. I'm not anti-aging. I definitely use some eye cream, y'all. I love my eye cream. But I think that there's a philosophy that comes with a lot of that, that you're not good enough, so buy this product so you can be good enough, that is a counterfeit to what God tells us, which is, you are my child, and you are not sent here to be perfect. You're sent here to learn, and eventually you will be perfected, but not in this lifetime. And I feel like we put so much pressure on ourselves physically And also spiritually to be perfect in the here and now. To make our environments around us, our houses, our families perfect. And I feel like that puts a lot of stress on us sometimes that I feel like can even kind of destroy us or destroy parts of us. And I think it's really important that we see that pressure as the counterfeit that it is. Yes, we want to strive to do the very best what we can. Yes, we want to stay healthy and maintain a, you know, good looking appearance. But there's a balance And I guess that's what what I'm seeing is I feel like a lot of times our world is pushing us to extremes and there's a balance. Like there's a balance of where Christ wants us to be and where the world wants us to be is that counterfeit. Does that make sense? I don't know if it does. I don't know if I just rambled for 20 minutes, but that's, that's just kind of what I've been thinking about a lot in my mind this week. Okay, next section. The Book of Mormon can help me resist the influence of those who try to deceive me says as you read alma thirty six through thirty one the teachings of Korahor may sound familiar. That's because, as President Ezra Taft Benson taught, the Book of Mormon reveals and can fortify us against the evil designs, strategies, and doctrines of the devil in our day. The type of apostates in the Book of Mormon are similar to the type we have today. God, with his infinite knowledge, so molded the Book of Mormon that we might see the error and know how to combat false educational, political, religious, and philosophical concepts of our time. Okay, I found a couple of really good articles about Korahor this week um, that I wanted to share some thoughts from, and one specifically was called Countering Korahor's Philosophy, and it's by Gerald Blund. And it's in the July 1992 Ensign. And there's going to be like a little crash course on philosophy. Now, I do not know a whole lot about philosophy. All I know is like I took Philosophy 101 or whatever at BYU. But um, he's going to give a little crash course on philosophy because it helps us understand how we gain knowledge. And how Korahor had some logical fallacies in the way that he gained knowledge. Okay. Gerald Lund says, President Ezra Taft Benson oh, hey, we just read a quote by him. Here's another one. Has often reminded us that all the major Book of Mormon writers said that they were writing for our day. Consequently, we should constantly ask ourselves, what did the Lord inspire Mormon or Moroni or Alma to include that in his record? What lesson can I learn that will help me to live in this day and age? In Alma 30, Mormon gives a lengthy account of a man he calls Antichrist, including a detailed summary of his false teachings, Using President Benson's guideline, let us examine the story of Korihor to see why Mormon felt it was so important to tell us his story. First, though, it will help to look at some philosophical terms used by contemporary philosophers. Doing so will help us see the deviousness and the attractiveness to the carnal mind of Korihor's teachings, which were actually Satan's teachings. Okay, so pause. This is where he's going to go into several different philosophical kind of schools of thought, and I'm going to try and explain them briefly because he goes into them a little bit more in depth in the article. If you have more interest, you can go back in and actually read this article. But the first branch of philosophy he talks about is metaphysics. And he says, metaphysics is the branch of philosophy that deals with the nature of reality. It tries to answer the question, what is real? And in the case of Korahor, we can see him asking the question, is God real? Like that's the question that he's arguing. And his side, he's arguing no. And Alma's arguing yes, okay? So we have two different ideas here that are kind of warring against each other. Gerald Lund says, The question of whether there is a God in a spiritual world beyond the natural world we know is a metaphysical question. Though today we often use the word supernatural in a more limited sense, originally it refers to a world higher or above than the one we see and experience with our physical senses. Okay, second branch of philosophy that we're going to study is called axiology. Axiology is the study of ethics and values. It wrestles with the questions as what is good, what is ethical, and what is right and wrong. And we see this in Korohor's arguments where he talks about, you know, you're leading people away after the false traditions of their fathers. And you're hurting them by taking all their money and having power over them. And Alma's like, what are you talking about, Korohor? But that's him kind of questioning the axiology, I guess, of the church. All right. The third branch of philosophy is epistemology. Epistemology is the study of how we know what is real or true. So how do we know God is real? And how do we know what is good? What is ethical? How do we know those things? Well, there's a couple different way, ways that we can like acquire knowledge. This is also in the Gerald Lund article. Again, I'm going to be paraphrasing slightly. Um, You can go in and read if you want more in-depth stuff. So there's four different ways that he lists. The first one is authoritarianism, which is you basically learn something from an authority. Sometimes it can be your parents, teachers, religious leaders, consultants, the article you read online somewhere, you know, like that's authoritarianism. That's how you learn something from an authority. Okay. There's rationalism. Which means you gain the truth through logic. Does it make sense? Is it logical? Okay, then that's a truth. There's pragmatism. It determines does something work. So the business world is really pragmatically minded. Does this particular model work? Does it sell well? If yes, then go, it's valid. If it doesn't, it's rejected. Empiricism is another model, and it uses observation or personal experience to arrive at truth. This is knowledge that's gained through senses. What you see, what you touch, what you hear, what you smell, and what you taste. Okay, so you have those four different methods. Learn something from an authority, see if it's rational. Does it work? Does it not work in the real world? And then can you see, touch, taste, feel it, right? Now, Gerald Lund says, which of these systems do Latter day Saints subscribe to? The answer, of course, is all of them. We do to create our testimonies, we rely on all of them. But we also rely on another way of knowing truth, which is divine revelation. In this method, truth comes either directly from God or through his prophets. Okay, so we're adding on a whole other method of gaining knowledge that someone who is anti-Christ would not have. So that helped me to see why sometimes maybe the people that are not part of our church think we're kind of crazy because we have this whole other I guess, empirical system for gathering knowledge that maybe someone who is not of our faith doesn't have. You know, we have that extra oomph to gathering knowledge, which I think is nice, but it could be why sometimes I think people think maybe we're a little weird. Okay, continuing on, Gerald Lund whether he recognizes it or not every person holds to a metaphysical position trusts in at least one system of epi- epistemology oh that word kills me every time guys epistemology and holds a personal axiology or set of values in ethics furthermore these three areas of our own philosophy are all interrelated our metaphysics which is our view of reality does god exist does he not exist influences our epistemology the way we gain our knowledge, and then together the two determine our axiology, which is our values and ethics. So let's suppose, for example, that a person like Korahor rejects the idea that there is a spiritual dimension to life. He doesn't believe in God or anything beyond this realm, okay? So he doesn't believe in God or anything like that. So then his metaphysical position automatically determines what he will accept as truth. If he doesn't have God as a source, revelation is rejected because the reality of God is rejected, Deciding what is good and bad, therefore, will not be dependent on any set of God-given laws or his fear of eternal consequences. And this is where Korihor is fundamentally false. This was Korihor's lie. Why would Satan, why do we need to care about this? Why would Satan care about such things as our view of metaphysics, our view of God and epistemology, how we come to know about God? Why is it important to Satan? And why is it important for us to know that it's important to him? Because if he, Satan, can shape our views on those issues, then those views provide a basis, as Alma declares, to destroy the children of God. The philosophy Satan taught Korhor is a rational system. It is not true, but it is rational. If we accept the assumption that there is no supernatural reality— then it logically follows that there is no God. And if that is the case, then man is the supreme being. And it follows that if there are no eternal realities, then there are no eternal consequences for man's actions. So that's Korahor's reasoning. And Korahor's reasoning is that man himself determines what is right and wrong, not some set of rules laid down by a group of phony religious leaders claiming to speak for a God who doesn't exist. This is in Korahor's mind. This is not truth, okay? I say God exists. Not not Korahor says he does not, Okay. This is the heart of Korahor's doctrine. By preaching his false philosophies, Korahor accomplishes Satan's designs in a grand fashion. Note Mormon's description of the end result of his teachings. And thus he did preach unto them, leading away the hearts of many, causing them to lift up their heads in wickedness, yea, leading away many women and also men to commit whoredoms. What a victory for Satan! This is not just wickedness. These people are proud in their wickedness. And why shouldn't they be? Korahor has convinced them that there is no God and no ultimate right or wrong. All the psychological hang-ups they feel, guilt, shame, are simply the result of the foolish teachings of ignorant parents or self-serving religious leaders. Do we not see that today? Like, oh, that's so old-fashioned. That's what they used to believe, but that's not what we believe now. We're so much more, you know, aware of things now. Um, Interesting, huh? How that kind of, you know, comes full circle. Okay, Korahor today. Gerald Lund continues. President Ezra Taft Benson has taught that the Book of Mormon exposes the enemies of Christ. It confounds false doctrines and it lays down contention. It fortifies the humble followers of Christ against the evil designs, strategies, and doctrines of the devil in our day. God, with his infinite foreknowledge, so molded the Book of Mormon that we might see the error and know how to combat false educational, political, religious, and philosophical concepts of our time. Today, the world is permeated with philosophies similar to those taught by Korihor. We read them in books, we see them championed in movies and on television, and we hear them taught in classrooms and sometimes even in churches of our time. A prophet's answer. So how do we deal with these false philosophies? Fortunately, Mormon not only gave us Korihor's doctrines, he also gave us an inspired answer to them. And this is the real value that we find in the account of Korihor. The first thing to note is that Alma does not get pulled into philosophical debate with Korihor. He doesn't allow himself to be pulled onto the ground that Korihor tries to define as the area of debate. There is great lesson in that. We combat false philosophies with revelation and true doctrine, not academic debate. Okay, I want to pause there. This is a big old pause. This is something that I've been really thinking about this week. Um, When I go in and actually read the conversation between Alma and Korihor, I'm seeing Korihor come before Alma, and he's throwing out, you know, statement after statement. I believe this. I think you believe this, so you must believe this. And I say this, but you say that. And statement after statement after statement. Alma, when he's talking to Corahor, asks questions. Do you think this? Well, you know this is not true, so why would you say that? You know, there's lots of question marks in Alma's comments to Korihor. No question marks in Korihor's comments to Alma. Which one of those do you think is actually talking for understanding? You know, I think Alma in his mind is like, not only is like, whoa, this guy's really not saying correct things. Like this is definitely false doctrine, but I think he's perhaps con- like honestly concerned about Korhor's spiritual well-being. Korhor, do you really believe this? Like, do you really believe this? Are, are you okay, dude? Like, I'm worried about your spiritual welfare. Like, and so I think he's asking questions to figure out like, how deeply does this guy, has he deceived himself? You know, and he's trying to figure that out. I see his care as being not only for the people that Korihor has led astray and not only for his church, but also for Korihor and trying to figure out how deeply does this self-deception in Korihor go. So Alma is asking questions and having this discussion for understanding. Korihor, on the other hand, is having this discussion to like smash, (laughs) like argue, like blow stuff down. Like that's his purpose. And I see that. Again, social media. on social media, I see it in news media, people smashing things down with their opinions, wanting to argue. They don't want to discuss. They don't want to have open dialogue or a calm, peaceful dialogue. They just want to smash with their opinions. And that's what I see a lot. And my mom, I was talking to her about this, and she says, you know what I've learned? As a public or a political leader, you know, she's in public office in our, our town. She's on our city council. She says, people will get really mad about something and they will write you an email and it will be like 10 pages long. But if you turn around and say, I can tell that you're really upset about this. Would you like to meet face to face and discuss this further so you can tell me about this? She's like, I have only ever had two people ever take me up on that. She's like, do you know how many like irate, irritated emails I've gotten in my life? I've only ever had two people take me up on actually meeting face to face to discuss it further and actually get something done. And that's kind of what I see here in Korahor and Alma's account. Korahor just wants to unload on Alma. Like he doesn't want to change Alma's mind. He just wants to like, I guess, unload and everything that he's carrying, this anger that he's got, the self-deception that he's got going on. He just wants to unload that. He doesn't actually care about what Alma's saying. It's a one-sided conversation for Korahor is kind of what I'm seeing. So that was something I really saw. Okay, let's go back to Gerald Lund. Second, Alma exposes Korihor for what he is. In effect, Alma says to Korihor, You know that we don't profit from our service in the church, but you say we glut ourselves on the labor of the people. Therefore, I say you deliberately twist the truth. It all comes down to one irrefutable conclusion. Korihor is a liar. But there's more to Alma's answer than that. Alma takes Korihor's own philosophy and catches him in the trap of his own making. Corihor teaches that we can only know what we see, which is from Alma 30:15. But when questioned, Corihor categorically denies that he believes there is a god. Alma then asks, "What evidence have ye that there is no god or that Christ cometh not?" I say unto you that you have none. Save it be your word only. It is an inspired insight on the part of Alma. Korihor is not consistent in his own thinking. If we truly can know only those things for which we have empirical evidence, then we cannot teach that there is no God unless we have evidence for that belief. And Korihor has no evidence for that belief. Korihor will only consider only evidence that can be gathered through the senses. In such a system, it's much easier to prove that there is a God because everything proves that there is a God. All it takes is for one person to see, hear, or otherwise have an experience with God. And thereafter, the existence of God cannot be disproved. But here is what it would take to disprove that there is a God. Since God is not confined to this earth, we would have to search throughout the entire universe for evidence of him to make sure that there's not any. And we assume that God is able to move about, so it would not be enough to start at point A in the universe and search to point Z, after we, what if after we leave point A, God moves there and stays there for the rest of the search? In other words, for Korahor to say that there is no God, based on the very criteria he himself has established, he would have to perceive every cubic meter of the universe simultaneously. And this creates a paradox. In order for Corahor to prove there is no God, he would have to be a God himself. Therefore, in declaring there is no God, he is acting on faith, which is the very thing he so sharply derides the religious leaders of his day. Okay, but I think that is enough about the whole Korihor side of things and his philosophies. There's actually another article that I found really interesting this week called Was Korihor an Atheist from Book of Mormon Central? I'll post that on my blog and social media so you can go look it up. But I think that's a whole lot about Korihor's argument. What I want to talk about now is how do we respond to untruth like this to incorrect doctrine like this to antichrist sentiments like this how do we respond how do we guard against them like that is I think really important for us to know so back to come follow me it says reading about the interaction between Korahor and Alma can help prepare you for situations when others may try to deceive you it may help to study Alma 30 29 through 60 to understand how Korahor was re- deceived and what can you learn from Alma's response to Korahor's teachings. The first thing I saw when I went through and specifically it says Alma 30, 31 through 35. What can we learn there? Let's go in and read that real quick. I don't think it's very long. It says, And he did rise up in great swelling words before Alma, and he did revile against the priests and teachers, accusing them of leading away the people after the silly traditions of their fathers, for the sake of glutting on the labors of the people. Now Alma said unto him, Thou knowest that we do not glut ourselves upon the labor of this people. For behold, I have labored even from the commencement of the reign of the judges until now, with mine own hands for my support, notwithstanding my many travels about the land to declare the word of God unto many people. And notwithstanding the labors which I have performed in the church, I have never received so much as even one senine for my labor. Neither has any of my brethren, save it were in the judgment seat. And then we have received only according to law for our time. And now, if we do not receive anything for our labors in the church, what doth it profit us to labor in the church, save it were to declare the truth that we may have the rejoicings and the joy of our brethren? Why would we do it, basically? And then why sayest thou that we preach unto the gospel to get gain, when thou of thyself knowest we receive no gain? And now, believest thou that we deceive this people, that we cause such joy in their hearts? So you can see there the question marks that Alma's kind of asking him. But it was interesting to me. The way that I saw Alma react to Korhor's statements was that he fought them with truth. And that made me think of, you know, we already read the Ephesians scripture about we wrestle not against principalities and darkness and all that stuff like that. But that made me think of the armor of God. So let's go into Ephesians and read the Ephesians armor of God um, verses real quick. Okay. Ephesians 6. Starting off with 12, we're going to reread it. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Therefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, having on the breastplate of righteousness, So two things you can have to defend against false doctrine, truth and righteousness, okay? Have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, so be peaceful about things. 16, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, watching there with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. Okay. So the things that I saw Alma fight Korihor with this week was truth, righteousness, the spirit. He had the spirit with him. So he knew what Korihor was thinking. He had faith in the things that he was talking about and he was peace. He, he, like that was the thing that was amazing to me. He was peaceful because Korohor is kind of like making fun of them, talking about silly doctrines and the foolish notions of the like, traditions of thy fathers. And, you know, he's kind of poking fun at Alma the whole time. Alma is always cordial to him. And he doesn't ever really rile up to what Korohor is kind of provoking him to. You know, there's a saying that you don't have to show up to every argument you're invited to. And Korahor is constantly inviting Alma to arguments like poking at him and poking at him and poking at him. And Alma doesn't show up to the argument. He just continues to, like, say peacefully, hey, here's this. Or, hey, here's this question. Do you really believe this? Do you really believe this? You know, and keeps, keeps it civil. Which I think was an incredible tool for Alma to use in the, kind of like this heated situation. Um, Something else, you know. especially when I was talking to my friend Kansas about this episode, she was talking about how do I know what's true? Because when you're talking about situations like this where there's so much muddied information out there, especially like on the internet, and someone pops up and says, hey, this one thing and here's my source, but you can go into another source and find someone who says something totally opposite. How do you know which one is truth? How do you find truth in like the mess of all this? Because you can spend hours researching stuff, but do I really need to do that? Because for every little thing, do I, I I don't have time to spend hours researching every little bit of truth, right? To make sure it's true, true. All right. So I found a talk. It's called the foundation of correct decisions by Richard G. Scott. He says, since truth is the only meaningful foundation upon which we can make wise decisions, how then can one establish what is really true? Increasingly, more people are finding that making wise decisions is becoming more and more difficult because of the ultra-interconnected world in which we live. Constantly forced into our consciousness is an incessant barrage of counsel, advice, and promotions. It is done by a bewildering array of media, internet, and other means. On a given subject, we can receive multiple strongly delivered, carefully crafted messages with solutions. But often two of the solutions can be diametrically opposed. No wonder some, of, some are confused and are not sure how to make the right decisions. To further complicate matters, others try to persuade us that our decisions must be socially acceptable and politically correct. Some pondering of that approach will reveal how wrong it is. Since social and political structures differ wildly over the world and can dramatically change with time, the folly of using that method to make choices is apparent. The best way of finding truth is simply to go to the origin of all truth and ask or respond to inspiration. For success, two ingredients are essential. First, unwavering faith in the source of all truth. Second, a willingness to keep God's commandments to keep open spiritual communication with Him. And then I'm going to skip on down. He goes through a couple different things about the scientific method and things like that. But skipping on down through his his conference talk here. It says, the process of identifying truth sometimes necessitates enormous effort coupled with profound faith in our Father and His glorified Son. I want to pause there. So that, you know, when I was talking to my friend Kansas, you know, the thing that came to me was, I'm like, you have to know. What is worth fighting for? What truth is worth fighting for? You know, is it something that's going to personally impact you in a great way? then, And not great being like, yay, awesome. But like, is it going to impact your life in like a big way? Then yeah, it's worth researching. It's worth fighting to find that truth. It's worth praying about and it's worth worrying about. But if it's something that you're trying to find just so you can make your mind up about a particular position on a subject... Is it worth spending all that time? I mean, that's something that you've got to decide. Is it worth spending all that time researching and tracking down that particular opinion? Um, That's something that you've got to make up in your own mind. So I think not only praying to find what is truth and what it is that we're searching after, but praying to find out what's important. Is this facts that I'm looking for and trying to prove it's true? Is it the most important thing I could be doing right now? Or is there something else better that I can be doing? You know? That was something else I was thinking of. And it's hard sometimes to track down and try and find those answers to truth. And here's what Richard G. Scott says about that. He says, God intended that it be so to forge your character. He intended it to be hard for you to find truth. Worthy character will strengthen your capacity to respond obediently to the direction of the Spirit as you make vital decisions. When you have fought to find truth in something, then you can be sure because of the fight that you created you will have learned so much along the way but also you can be sure of your decision and of that foundation of truth that you're leaning on when things are hard righteous character is what you are becoming it is more important than what you own what you have learned or what goals you have accomplished it allows you to be trusted righteous character provides the foundation of spiritual strength It enables you in times of trial and testing to make difficult, extremely important decisions correctly, even when they seem overpowering. I think that's why God has made it hard sometimes for us to kind of figure out what's truth and what's not truth, because he wants us to have that struggle to connect with him and to create, I guess, the strength and the fortitude that we would gain from that struggle to find truth that we wouldn't otherwise. I guess that's kind of what Richard G. Scott is saying. He says, understand and apply this vital principle to your life. Your exercise of faith builds character. Fortified character expands your capacity to exercise greater faith. Thus your confidence in making correct decisions is enhanced. And the strengthening cycle continues. The more your character is fortified, the more enabled you are to exercise the power of faith for yet stronger character and finding more truth. All right. So that was something I was thinking about this week, too. It's like How do we know when Korhor is up in our face? You know, I guess a metaphorical Korhor is, like, up in our face, spitting out, you know, his Antichrist sentiments at us. How do we know if it's true or not? Um, You know, turn to God. That's, like, the one thing I can come up with. And you may not get an answer right away. Like, Richard G. Scott says, it may be a quest. Like, you may have to wrestle for it. But that wrestling will build character, and it will also build your faith in the answer that you get back, I believe. This whole Alma and Korahor thing is just so... The whole story is just... And I know we haven't even touched on the Zoramites. I know we haven't. You know what? We're going to touch on it. I don't care that we're running out of time. We're going to read some of the scriptures because one of my favorite scriptures in the entire Book of Mormon is in that chapter. We're going to read Alma 31, my favorite scripture in the Book of Mormon. So they've gone into the apostate Zoramites. They found them on top of this crazy Rami thing and they've got all kinds of crazy stuff that they're doing. Okay. Then Alma, you know, he has been through this, like, he's had a rough couple of years, I have to say. You know, he had the whole thing in Ammonihah. He had all these other different episodes where he was in. He had this whole thing with Korihor, and now he's assembled kind of this dream team of super missionary guys, and they're going to the Zoramites, and they get there, and, like, there's crazy wackadoo stuff going on, right? And so poor Alma. In 19, it says he was astonished beyond all measure. I would be too. I would be too. And in 26, he says, O Lord, how long wilt thou suffer that thy servants shall dwell here below in the flesh to behold such gross wickedness among the children of men? Behold, O God, they cry unto thee and yet their hearts are swallowed up in their pride. Behold, O God, they cry unto thee with their mouths, but they are puffed up even to greatness with the vain things of the world." And this is the point where I'm convinced that when he was talking to Korihor, not only was he worried about what Korihor was doing to his church, but he was worrying about Korihor as a person. Because he's saying, Heavenly Father, they're talking to you with their mouths and they're puffed up to greatness with the vain things of the world. But I'm worried about them because they're so false. And like, you can see the care that he has. And we can actually see this when we read verses, let's start in 30. You can see the care that he has for them. Oh, Lord God. How long wilt Thou suffer that such wickedness and infidelity shall be among this people? O Lord, wilt Thou give me strength that I may bear with mine infirmities? For I am infirm, and such wickedness among this people doth pain my soul. O Lord, my heart is exceedingly sorrowful. Wilt Thou comfort my soul in Christ? O Lord, wilt Thou grant unto me that I may have strength, that I may suffer with patience these afflictions, which shall come upon me because of the iniquity of this people? O Lord, wilt Thou comfort my soul? And give unto me success, and also my fellow labourers who are with me Ammon and Aaron and Omner and Amulek and Zeezrom, and also my two sons, yea, even all these wilt thou comfort, O Lord? Yea, wilt thou comfort their souls in Christ? Wilt thou grant unto them that they may have strength, that they may bear their afflictions which shall come upon them, because of the iniquities of this people? O Lord, wilt thou grant unto us that we may have success in bringing them again unto thee in Christ? And this is where my favorite scripture alert is. Um, You know how like they make those like missionary plaques for like missionaries when they've gone on their mission. This is the set of scriptures that I would want on my missionary plaque. Alma thirty one, starting in thirty four. Okay, here we go. This is what I want on my missionary plaque. O Lord, will Thou grant unto us that we may have success in bringing them again unto Thee in Christ? Behold, O Lord, their souls are precious. And many of them are our brethren. Therefore, give unto us, O Lord, power and wisdom, that we may bring these, our brethren, again unto thee. That's it. That's like my favorite scriptures in the Book of Mormon right there. Um, it's like my life mission statement is right there. I'm, I'm getting misty-eyed. You guys can probably hear. Um, because it is. It's what I want to do. I want to bring people to Christ. and Because I think they're precious. And I see that Alma and the people that he was with saw the preciousness even of the souls there among the Zoramites who are doing crazy stuff. And they saw the preciousness of the soul of Korahor, who's doing crazy stuff. And they're going to see more preciousness in the poor of the Zoramites in the upcoming weeks um, as we study next week stuff. But all souls are precious unto the Lord. And so give us power and wisdom to bring our brethren unto thee. That is the prayer for my life. Um, Give me power and wisdom to bring my brethren unto thee in Christ. Um, Sorry, like that's literally like I have it written in the front chapter or front page of my Book of Mormon, like this particular scripture citation, because I just I really, really love it so much. And then he puts his hands on those who are with them. They are all filled with the Holy Spirit. And from that point forward, they did separate themselves one from another, taking no thought for themselves what they should eat or what they should drink or what they should put on. For the Lord provided for them that they should hunger not, neither should they thirst. Yea, and he also gave them strength that they should suffer no manner of afflictions, save it were swallowed up in the joy of Christ. Now this was according to the prayer of Alma, and this because he prayed in faith. What a beautiful prayer. That's one of my favorite prayers is recorded in the scriptures because of the care that he had for others. He cared so much that it hurt him and that's what he was asking for help with his infirmities because he was caring too much. And I think that's a beautiful thing. Um anyways, guys, I know that was a long episode. Thank you for sticking with me through it. Thank you for waddling through that philosophy section with me. Um I know it was kind of dense. Um there's just a lot to think about this week, a lot, to, a lot of topics that we can, I guess, take and apply in our lives. But if I could leave anything with you to apply in your life is to remember that everyone you come in contact with is a child of God, and everyone you come in contact with, their soul is precious. So with power and wisdom, bring them unto Christ. I'm going to leave you guys with that. I love you guys. Bye, y'all. The Savior Said is not an official product or endorsed by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. All comments and opinions are my own personal opinions and not representative of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. The music used in The Savior Said is Fireflies and Stardust by Kevin McLeod. The hymn quoted in the opening is Come Follow Me, lyrics by John Nicholson. The Come Follow Me curriculum can be found at comefollowme.churchofjesuschrist.org. For show notes, new episode alerts, and other fun and inspirational things, check out my Facebook page at facebook.com slash Said. You can also find me on Instagram. Comments or questions? Email me at thesaviorsaid at gmail.com. Content in The Savior Said is copyright protected. All rights are reserved. Thank you for listening.